This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity in Houston, Texas, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America. Please join us for worship on Sundays at 8, 9, and 11.15, and visit us online at holytrinityrec.org. Enjoy the sermon. This morning's sermon comes from our Old Testament lesson, Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 through 23. Again, that's Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 through 23. You'll see many articles and news reports in the modern age and within the last couple years about distractions and particularly when it comes to electronic distractions. Uh, Seems like there's always something around us that's grabbing our attention on that screen of ours, whether it be our phone, our tablets, or our computer. Uh, People will tend to ignore what's around them in real time and become attracted to something that flashes up on their screen, whether it's an advertisement, an email, a text message, And one article that I had actually read in the past week, it talks about the idea that electronics, especially smartphones, have become the secondhand smoke of this current generation. And what the author meant by that is is that the adults, the parents who are constantly looking at their phones with their children with them, uh, affect how their children even communicate. Because in days gone by, we could, when we would talk to each other, we would always be talking face to face. We would be able to pick up on people's meanings based on facial gestures or body motion or even tone of voice. But they're saying that because of the smartphone that the kids aren't even able to pick up on that because the parent is so focused on the screen that they're not willing to take the time to even look at their child. So a lot of times we see that the urgent that comes up to us in technology or, or even on the television uh, can take away from the important. And this isn't necessarily just true within the spirit or the, excuse me, the, the modern world or the, the world in which we live, but also when we look spiritually, it's the same issue. We have things that are always up distracting us from God. Um, In Christianity, we call those distractions sin. Uh, They're those things that take us away from obeying God or loving God. They are uh, the distractions, I guess you could say, of our spiritual life. There's always something that will get in the way of our wanting to pray or of our wanting to meditate on Scripture or of attending church. There's hobbies to be done. There's important meetings to go to. There's events to attend. And these things can get in the way of what we do each Sunday or every morning or every evening when we pray or go to church. And Zechariah, back in his day, had to deal with this same problem, the issue of distraction and its corollary of desire. What do you desire? And 
Zechariah was primarily concerned with the people of Israel when they came back to Israel and Jerusalem after the captivity in Babylon. And his primary, primary concern was the worship of God and the building of the temple. And the, the, the fear was is that people were distracted, that they were too worried about what other people were thinking of them in the local population that weren't Jewish. They were worried or perhaps even wandering again off into idolatry. And it was Zechariah's position as a prophet, a post-exilic prophet, we would call him, uh, to bring the people back to God, to have them focus, to have them understand what was important. And that importance was, in that day, focused on the temple and the worship of God himself. And in chapter 8 of this book that he had written, In this particular paragraph, he talks about a future time in which he gives the people hope about what the nation of Israel and particularly the new Jerusalem is going to look like and what people's intentions are in that future time. And as we look at the paragraph, as you study it or as you look upon it, you may or may not know that there's this literary, uh, not necessarily a trick, but a way of memorizing. Uh, back during an oral, the oral tradition, before Zechariah probably even wrote this, there was the oral tradition of what, when he was talking, that this is how people would uh, spread his message. And there's this uh, literary method that they call chiasm. Uh, chiasm is simply a, an idea that's continually reflected in a paragraph or in a, uh, in a prayer or in a psalm in which an idea is kind of reflected back at itself. So, for instance, when you look at this particular paragraph, we see the idea of entreating the Lord or we see the idea of seeking the Lord reflected in various verses. Uh, if I had a chalkboard, I'd be able to draw it out for you. It's kind of hard to describe it uh, in any other way. But if you were to look at a, if you're a mathematician and you look at the greater than or less than sign, the idea is, is that, for instance, verses 20 and verses 23 carry the same idea. And then when you look at 21 and 22, they carry the same idea as well. And this was meant as a memorization uh, tool for the people at the time. So when we look at verses 21 and 23, for instance, we have this idea that Zechariah is bringing up that people are going to be coming or seeking to come to the place where God is. And of course, that's Jerusalem. Uh, That's where the temple is. That is at that time where God is worshipped. And that is the place where he decided that worship would, uh, would be held in honor of him. And he says that it's not just Israelites or Jews that are going to be coming to the temple. But he says, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. Verse 23 goes on so far to say that people of ten, men of ten nations will come along and when they see a Jewish man, they'll grab hold of his robe. And they'll say, please take us with you because we hear that God is with you. And notice 
the fact that there's this desire for coming to God. There's this desire to go to be where God is. And right now we see some of that fulfilled in the fact that that we have the church. For instance, in Acts 2, we see that's the day of Pentecost. That was the chapter in which uh, we find Peter's great sermon in chapter 2. And that was also the time when we remember Pentecost, we remember the tongues of fire that lay rest on Jesus' disciples, and they were able to communicate in many tongues. This was way, uh, God's way of communicating that the church was not just meant to stay bottled up in Jerusalem. It was meant to be a worldwide faith. And as we go through Acts, we see that this prophecy of Zechariah starts to get fulfilled in a very small way as we see Peter and Paul primarily spreading the gospel throughout the Middle East, and then as we see Paul at the very end spreading the gospel in Rome itself, which by that time was considered the end of the civilized world. But it's this idea that mankind at the end of time will be so focused on God that they will desperately want to come and see him. But right now... We see the opposite, or we only see it in part. For instance, when we look in Romans 1, Paul gives this rather blistering assessment of human nature and their desire for God. In fact, he says that people don't really, in their natural state, want to be with God at all. They would rather run from him. They, despite seeing all the evidence and creation around him, as Romans 1 says, that God put there, for people to understand that he existed, they actually ignore him. They run the other way. And they did not honor him, as it says, as God or give thanks to him, but they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So here... When you take that and you see it in the context, Paul is saying that people would rather go worship a piece of wood than they would go and seek God. Uh, today might not be a piece of wood, but it could be an ideology, a philosophy, uh, some cause that we get caught up in that we want to follow to the extent that we almost bow down and worship to it. While we may not admit it, it's something that takes the place of the rightful adoration that God deserves. In fact, Paul would even go on to say in 2 Corinthians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 4, excuse me, that not only are people ignoring God, but Satan actually blinds the minds of unbelievers to the gospel. So there's this period in history like that we're in right now in which we see partially that Zechariah's prophecy is fulfilled, but we still see a terrible divide in humanity between those who we are called the children of God and those who are still caught in their sin and wanting to run away from God rather than to him. And as we go on into the, ver- into the paragraph, we look at verses 21 through 22. And again, these are mirrored ideas to each other. We find that the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. And this person says, I myself am going. 
And as I looked at this verse, it looks like the world's easiest revival taking shape at the end of time. People will naturally want to come and entreat the favor of the Lord. That is to find his favor, uh, to be in his presence, to love him and adore him. Uh, Verse 23 will go on and say much the same thing. It adds this idea of peoples and strong nations even coming to seek the Lord. So nations that we see that are what we consider world powers in this day and age will, at this particular time, bow down to God himself. The focus, again, will be on what God does, what he says, and who he is. It won't be on our fears or on our pain or how other people or other nations around us are faring. The focus will be on God himself, and our concern will be, what does he say? What does he say about how I'm to live? How am I to love? Uh, How am I to uh, interact with him? And what we see in a big part of what we see in this paragraph is a reversal of the curse. If you remember back in Genesis 3, we have the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God says you can eat of any tree of the garden except this one. And this is the tree that Satan comes over and he tempts, um, he tempts Eve and Adam to eat of the fruit. And when they do, the first thing they do is to cover themselves. And then when they hear God coming in the woods to seek them, they hide. They run away from him. They desire not to be seen by him. And of course, we know the rest of the story as it unfolds. The curse is then given, and then we are separated as humanity from a holy God. This is a reversal of that curse. We also see that there's a love and a desire for God that we don't see worldwide right now, though we see it in part in the church. And there's this constant refrain in the Bible for us to love God, to desire God. It's not just to follow his laws for the sake of following his laws to get out of trouble much like a child might try to follow the law of his parents or the rules of the household, as long as the parents are around, just the fact that when they leave, they start to do whatever they want to. There's this idea that you follow God and that you follow his laws because you love him. When you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, for instance, this is the final book of the Torah. In chapter 6, we have this verse in uh, chapter 6, verse 4 and verse 5. And this particular, these particular two verses are known as the Shema. Uh, it's the basic doctrinal statement of Judaism. Um, and it goes like this. You probably have heard it. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the attitude that you're to have towards God. You're not just supposed to be rotely obeying him for the sake of escaping punishment, but you're to be in a vital relationship with him. You're to embrace him as your Lord. You're to see him as the object of praise and of adoration. Anything short of that is sin. But yet Zechariah in his paragraph here and in other places throughout prophecy, we see this coming to fruition at the end of time. And of course, along with love, we also see the idea of worship in this paragraph. 
in Matthew chapter 4, towards the end of the, uh, the chapter, in verses 9 through 10, Satan comes to Jesus in his temptation. And the final temptation that Satan levels at him is the idea of basically saying that to Jesus, all the kingdoms of this world can be yours. The only thing you have to do is bow down and worship me. And of course, Jesus being who he is, even in his weakened state as a human, comes back and says basically no. (laughs) But he says, be gone, Satan. He says, behold, uh, excuse me, in the wrong chapter here. But he says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And it was only at that time that the devil left him for a time. So we see here the idea that Jesus is bringing up or the the thought that Jesus brings before our minds is is that worship is the one thing that you're truly to do towards God and nothing else that is around you. Um, One thing that I mentioned in the first service that I mentioned here as well, uh, I sometimes get a little nervous when I hear preachers talk about becoming a fully committed Christian. Uh, I don't really want to be a downer on that particular phrase, but I really question what that means a lot of times, because how can we be fully committed Christians when we still struggle with sin? Because sin by its very definition is saying that we are rebellious and that we aren't fully committed to God and to Christ. We're still, because of God's grace, a work in progress, and he's gracious to us. But the idea that we're there isn't really true yet. The idea that we're fully committed isn't really quite true, and I give this paragraph as evidence. It's not that we don't have our desire to be with God, to love God, but that love is still incomplete and it's still in blossom. We also see in this paragraph this idea of perfection, but Zechariah in his prophecy doesn't give us the whole story. In fact, when you look at many prophets, they'll only give you pictures of what the future may look like in certain aspects. They don't go over everything. So Zechariah's primary desire here in this paragraph is to give the Jews hope that what they are doing isn't an end to itself, that there is a future and that there is a good ending, a proper ending, a perfect ending to what they are doing in the here and now as they're constructing the temple. And of course, we as Christians understand that knowledge, that perfect picture is coming to fruition in Christ himself. We see that first of all in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, that because of the cross, people can be called children of God and that they can come to him. It says this, it says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
Zechariah's picture of a perfect future in which all focus is towards God only comes through the cross. There is no reconciliation apart from Christ himself and what he's done and what he's done on the cross and the blood that he shed to justify us and to save us from God's wrath, so says Paul. And in so doing, in John chapter 1, it talks about belief in Christ being that means by which we actually not only become citizens of heaven, but as adopted children. He says in chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, that the true light which enlightens everyone, which he talks about meaning Jesus, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not even receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here we not only have the idea, again, of being a citizen of heaven, but being a child of God himself. Being, uh, as it says in one of our hymns, uh, Christ becomes our brother and God the Father becomes our father. We are given the heir, uh, the, the, the rights of an heir, as it says and again in Romans. Uh, we have all the rights that Christ has because when, Jesus, when God sees us, he sees Christ and us in him. So when we see in the beginning of the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy and the growth of Christ's church throughout the world, people from all nations will now seek God, some in part through their faith in Christ and their desire to be with him. It is, we could say, a prophecy in the, pro pro in the process of being fulfilled. While there is debate within the church on how that vision is going to come, whether you're an amillennial, a postmillennial, or a premillennial, it is going to happen, and Christ will return, and the whole vision will come because the center of that vision is Christ himself. And he alone, as it says, is the desire of the nations. He is the prince of peace, and he is the one who will come to see and adore in the new Jerusalem. He will become the focus rather than our pain or our jealousy or whatever we have in us that takes away from the proper focus of God himself. And as this fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy will be a world at peace with its creator and its savior, living amongst his people for all time. Amen.